Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Orangeri Country and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Shahrazad Balul. On today's show, we'll be discussing the proposed changes to the National Insurance Disability Scheme, as well as the broader political context surrounding the restructuring of the NDIS. Afterwards, we'll discuss the eugenic underpinnings of disability framing in the West, with a focus on imperial hygiene in colonial Australia. To discuss these issues, we're joined by Dr Shakira Hussain, who is a writer and researcher based at the University of Melbourne. She is the author of From Victims to Suspects, Muslim Women Since 9-11, and has researched and published articles on disability as a result of her lived experience with multiple sclerosis. Welcome to the show, Shakira. Thanks for having me, Sherazad. On April 15th, amid heavy backlash, the new minister for, for the NDIS, Linda Reynolds, signalled the government will pause a con- the contentious plans to roll out independent assessments by the middle of the year. Could you give us a brief overview, firstly, of what the proposed changes are to the scheme and why there was a significant backlash? In the scheme as it stands, people, disabled people submit reports from their own medical professionals who know their impairments very well and are in a strong position to state how they can best be supported. But under this new proposal, which has been trialled on a limited number of disabled people, instead of collating reports from, well, in my case, my neurologist, my physiotherapist, um, my occupational therapist, um, I don't even remember who else, Um, it was quite a long list, you would have a three-hour assessment with an assessor who was basically an a government contractor, and the concerns that a range of disability organisations put forward were that, well, what it came down to was that this really basically sounds like a cost-cutting exercise. The concerns that disability organisations hold about this proposed change is that these government contractors wouldn't necessarily have expertise in the relevant um, impairments that they were assessing. They would not be deeply familiar with the patients themselves and um, and and, and also that it was just a way to cut costs, which we know from reports by Rick Morton in the Saturday paper is quietly and secretly under discussion also within the NDIS. We know the reports in the media that the logic underpinning the changes is one of cost saving. Uh, leak, the leaked documents you mentioned revealed that the National Disability Insurance Agency, the NDIA, the agency that runs the NDIS, had set up a secretive unit the, that was called the Sustainability Action Task Force to slow the growth in participants and funding packages. Uh, so, and, and further to this, uh, reports uh, in The Guardian on April 18th uh, detail further leaks, uh, which was the hire of an external research company to help, quote unquote, create a new narrative to, you know, selling the NDIS changes to the public and as well as to staff. So for you, what does this say about the ways in which these logics govern disability care 
or uncare. Well, the name of the scheme is National Disability Insurance Scheme. And the insurance element of it is important here because it's supposed to distinguish it from welfare. Now, I think that welfare, like, you know, job seeker or disability support can really be seen as a form of insurance too, but it generally isn't. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's welfare and, um, and governments love cutting welfare. But insurance, the rationale behind bringing it, originally bringing it in, was that if you are disabled as a result of a car accident, then you might get an insurance payout that will cover the costs of your care for your lifetime. Whereas if you just happen to have basically the same impairment, but it's a result of a congenital disease or an accident where there's nobody left to sue. I mean, I spent a lot of time after I was first diagnosed trying to work out if I could sue John Howard and say that I'd got a neurological disease because of all the stress of his living under his government. But apparently that one wasn't going to fly. So I am very glad that the NDIS is here to provide me with what the courts, with their narrow-minded focus on fault, you know, was unable to obtain for me. But, um, yeah, but now that it's being conceptualised as welfare and like a handout, and the push seems to really be on to rein it in. Because it turns out that a lot more people have been living with a disability and not having adequate support than was initially, um, you know, than, than was originally anticipated. I mean, who knew? Um, and if we can turn to mm. the dynamics with COVID, mm. um, in September last year, you wrote uh, in the Saturday paper about the latest Disability Royal Commission hearings. The latest at the time. Yeah. At the time, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And um, pretty much saying how little regard has been given to people with disabilities during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and you mentioned the fear of being triaged out of potentially life-saving care. Um, can you speak to that, but within the current context? Well, there were some extremely alarming reports from Europe in particular, where there were a limited number of ventilators and medical staff having to determine who would get put on a ventilator and who wouldn't. And the quality of life assessment process for that was basically saying that disabled lives weren't worth as much as non-disabled lives, that we have a shit time anyhow. So, you know, having it end a little earlier than it might otherwise have occurred was less of a loss than having an able-bodied person, you know, um, die prematurely. And, you know, there was widespread shock of that. But I will also say social media has been a fabulous tool for disabled people to make the, our voices heard and to connect with each other. But it also means that we get to hear the kind of ableist bullshit that people think about us, you know, on a much more, you know, well, when we're in our own private space. And the sorts of comments that people were making when there was discussion of lockdowns that, well, why do we have to go into lockdown just because some people might die of COVID, but I'm a young, healthy, usually male, but not always, and I don't want to have to stay home or shut up my business. And, you know, a few, well, more than a few, elderly and or disabled people dying of dying a horrible death on a ventilator is, you know, 
um, that's a small price to pay compared to keeping the economy open and hearing our lives discussed as being disabled and also hearing us blamed for the lockdowns, you know, um, was enormously confronting and distressing for many disabled people who had been, in a lot of cases, shielding at home long before there were any government decrees telling everybody to do that, you know, and also who had been leaving more, leading more physically constrained lives pre-COVID just because of the expense and difficulty in getting around town with a disability. The politics around vaccinations and anti-vaxxers has uh, revealed uh, quite fascist elements. Mm. Um, I thought this might be a, an interesting link with um, what we discussed last year in an interview on 3CR about uh, eco-fascism mm. and disability. I was wondering if you could give listeners perhaps um, a bit more of an understanding as to what the links are there. Okay. All right. It's too often forgotten that the first victims of the types of Nazi killing methods, gas chambers that were later used on Jews in particular, were trialled on people with disabilities and um, and that th those kinds of sentiments towards disabled people have not gone away. We're seen as, you know, um, unwanted bodies and... In, in the same way that racialized bodies are unwanted and abhorrent. And so to be asked to have a vaccination, remembering that nobody's being forced to have a vaccination because it will help to get us to herd immunity and therefore provide protection to um, disabled and or racialized bodies, well, that's just the most ridiculous imposition on a healthy young white guy or a healthy young white woman. And... Um, what we really need is a populist movement that will protect our freedom to go around without a mask and unvaccinated and, you know, and start having holidays in Europe and America again and come back and not have to go into hotel quarantine because, you know, the people who are dying of COVID are the people whose lives we don't particularly care about anyway. On community radio around Australia, you are listening to Women on the Line. You were just listening to Dr. Shakira Hussain. And we're speaking with Shakira about the NDIS proposed changes and hearing about her work. The next section focuses on the eugenic underpinnings of governing people with disabilities. We left off the, we left off the discussion talking about the current political context surrounding the NDIS um, and also uh, the anti-vaccination uh, movement and the links with the with fascism, uh, but of course the politicisation and the governance of disabled bodies goes back further, as Shakira you just mentioned uh, Nazi Germany in your previous answer, and I was hoping you could give us some context to uh, this history more broadly, um, especially with kind, that has an underpinning in eugenics, uh, which is. Uh, or pseudoscience uh, that aim to improve the gen genetic quality of the human population. Yes, yeah, so in Australia, as elsewhere, white feminists played a very strong role in promoting eugenics. And one of the, from my point of view, most noteworthy of those figures was a woman called Lorna Hodgkinson, who, if you look up her biography online, she's praised as being 
the first woman to get a doctorate from Harvard University. And then she came back to Australia and got a job with the New South Wales government in basically disability care, although it wasn't called that back in the 1920s. And then she had a falling out with the New South Wales government over mismanagement and they then alleged that she'd lied about her academic qualifications, which she hadn't. So she's now also remembered as a bit of a feminist martyr, the Christine Holgate of her generation. Um, but um, her main concern in promoting disability care was in stopping disabled people from breeding and thereby lowering the value of the white race. She believed very strongly in forcible sterilization of disabled women. It's always the disabled women that they seem to be more concerned about. Disabled men don't want to interfere with any guy's knackers, but anyhow. Um, and <laughs> but um, as well as forcible sterilization, she said that disabled people should be kept in what she referred to as working colonies because that was the most effective way of making sure that what she referred to as feeble-minded women wouldn't be going out and having sex and, and children spreading venereal disease and lowering the quality of the white race. My colleague Jane Carey published a paper about Lorna Hodgkinson a few years ago which had the title, took its title from one of the, I think, the Victorian Association of Racial Hygiene or some similarly um, troubling sounding title. Anyhow, but the, anyway, um, and they passed a resolution in favour of forced sterilisation. And the, and the rationale they put forward for this, which is also the title of, of Jane's paper was not just a white race, but the best of the white race. So not only do we need to stop people of colour, you know, Asians in particular, from entering the country, but we have to make sure that the white people who are already in the country are producing the best quality babies. And so-called feeble-minded women are a threat to that. And we can still see that in disability care, today. And Australia st still does not have any federal legislation outlawing forced sterilisation and forced sterilisation of women, of disabled women in particular. There's some sort of state legislation, but it's patchwork. And the United Nations has noted this in its various reports as a failing on Australia's part. And the rationale that's put forward for that is that it makes life easier for carers if women, if, if they don't have to help disabled women and girls to manage their periods, you know, um, and that they can't be relied upon to use contraceptives, say, for that same purpose, and or, and uh, yeah, and and yeah, and why should their generally mothers be having to deal with their mucky pads or you know, or their inability to use pads and so much dirty laundry. But I think it, reading interviews with some parents who you know, are stating that it should be their decision, not their daughter's decision, it is also like just about a fear of them having babies and when a fear of them having sex more generally, actually, it sounds. But yeah, and, um, 
you know, and that they will not be worthy mothers. And rather than considering how they might could be provided with the necessary support to parent to have healthy parenting relationships, well, you know, this actually quite major surgery would be just so much easier for all concerned. As we're talking about fertility, you you've mentioned to me on numerous occasions the the pill was not about the reproductive rights of white women, but in fact to sterilise Indigenous women in the Americas. I thought maybe you could speak a bit more to this um, or how that operates within um, a broader framework of colonisation as we are living in a settler colony. Okay, in a piece of serendipitous um, timing, I happened to pick up a second-hand copy of Imperial Hygiene Critical History of Colonialism, Nationalism and Public Health by Alison Bashford just a month or so before the um, COVID-19 pandemic was declared. And it's been really interesting reading during that time because um, it talks about the way that quarantine was used in order to exclude racialized minorities in particular who were seen as you know, bearers of disease and therefore needed to be confined. And um, we saw that during the Melbourne lockdown, with the lockdown of the nine public housing towers, which, although it was correctly stated that the living conditions within the towers made them unsafe and made it much more you know, difficult, if not impossible, to social distance, but it was also... Talked about well because in in various media reports well because after all these years of living here they still don't speak good enough English to understand the public health message, you know or what about the government's responsibility to provide multilingual um, information leaflets? But apparently that's not as big a failure as in, um, and yeah and well and we also even before that we saw the huge spike in anti-Chinese racism in Australia as in Europe and North America. So um, we may have liked to believe that our thoughts about race and racism had progressed since the 1930s, but in many regards it just hasn't. Everything old is new again. For more context in this settler colony, we're now going to hear an excerpt from Deputy CEO of the First People's Disability Network, June Raymar. She spoke to 3CR's Thursday Breakfast on April 15th. We have the highest rate of people incarcerated who should not be there because they actually have a disability. And if they're supported with their disability needs, for most of the time, they would not be. But what we've seen is the jails are the new institutions for, you know, people with disability because there's nowhere else for them to access or, you know, be housed or or have the appropriate supports in their life. So, um, you know, in regards to, you know, most of our mobs, they want to live on country and, and have, you know, that support of, you know, their community and family and members around them. But the way the current system is, you know, most people... If they want a, a service system, you know, in regards to their package, they have to move to larger cities because, you know, the market is very dry and very thin, you know, particularly in rural and remote areas. We just heard from Deputy CEO of the First People's Disability Network, 
June Raymar, who spoke about the carceral links between disability and access to the NDIS for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We now return to the conversation with Dr Shakira Hussein as she discusses how prisons act as institutions where people with disabilities get locked away. Disabled people and First Nations people are far more likely to be low income, are far more likely to experience homelessness and are therefore far more likely to come into contact, are over-policed and are far more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system and to end up being incarcerated where their health needs cannot be adequately um, addressed and where their disabilities, particularly psychosocial disabilities but physical disabilities as well, are likely to become you know, m- much more acute. And on top of that, there are, as we've seen in the United States, very high rates of COVID-19 transition within prisons. Um, But again, this is seen as a failure of the disabled people and or racialised people concerned, not as a systemic failure that um, which they just have to, we are expected to navigate as best we can, put up or shut up. And the NDIS was about providing choice and control for people despite its flaws and this government in the name of cost-cutting wants to repeal that. And the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the importance of providing people and individuals and communities with choice and control. Disabled people had started wearing face masks, many of us anyhow, and shielding well before there were any government directives or even government advice suggesting that we do so. And similarly, First Nations community leaders and health services were enormously proactive and ahead of the government in laying down guidelines and in some cases rules that were designed to protect people against the the spread of COVID-19. And you know, this that's been one of the success stories of 2020 and just isn't paid sufficient attention. And that's all for Women on the Line today. You've just heard from Dr Shakira Hussein speaking with us about her work and research on the imperial contours of disability. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's so we'll be ending program. today's show with it's a song and presented called by American Dream by Undara. broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne, Wurundjeri Country. The program is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And also we welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 The Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. And the theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Le Tigre. I'm Scheherazade Blue, and I hope you can tune in again next time. So we'll be ending today's show with a song called American Dream by Andara.